Thank you for listening to the Thoughts of Redemption podcast. I'm your host, Lamar Gibbs. On this episode, I'm joined by my guest, Dr. Rob Reamer, author of Soul Care, professor at Alliance Theological Seminary in Nyack, New York, and founder of Renewal Ministries International. We talked about a wide range of topics, from the principles of soul care laid out in his book, to how we should view deliverance ministry, as well as mental health and how we integrate the body, soul, and spirit together. I pray that this is a blessing as you listen. It was for me as I talked with Dr. Rob. God bless. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Lamar Gibbs of Thoughts of Redemption, and this is the Thoughts of Redemption podcast where we um, celebrate the process of thought and God's hand in it. And I have a, a special guest here with me, uh, Dr. Rob Reamer. Um, it is a pleasure to, to have him here. He is the author of several books, but one in particular that I, I've read called Soul Care. And, you know, we just really want to wanted to get together and, and just have a conversation about, about Christ and mental health and, and also just the, all of the, the factors that are involved with that as believers. So welcome, Dr. Reamer. Well, it's good to be with you, Lamar. Glad to have uh, the opportunity to chat with you today about these issues. And uh, so just for the people that don't know, uh, can you just describe a little bit about who you are, um, what has God has done, and, and what do you do? Yeah, so I was a pastor for 27 years in the Boston area. I planted a church up there and pastored that church for 22 years. Uh, And then, you know, I also have taught at Alliance Theological Seminary in the graduate program, uh, in the seminary program, never at the undergrad, but uh, I've taught a lot of practical courses, uh, one of which was Soul Care, uh, which you mentioned is also a book. I do conferences around the world, and now I'm full-time at the seminary. I've been adjuncting down there for like 20 years, but now I'm full-time there. And I'm also, you know, doing a lot, well, before COVID, I was doing a lot of traveling and um, a lot of speaking around the world, still writing and things like that. So four kids, all grown, 18 is the youngest, 25 is the oldest. Uh, Jen and I have been married 30 years and we're in the best years of our marriage. So, but that, because we became healthier people, takes two healthy people to have a healthy relationship. So had to figure that journey out. Amen. Amen to that. Um, yeah, it's just, and uh, speaking of that, like, um, you know, me personally, I, I'm, I'm in a relationship. Um, I'm actually engaged. Recently got engaged last month, yes. And, and it's funny, because yesterday we uh, celebrated our two-year anniversary, um, which is awesome. And just what you're talking about, like, in relationships, um, I know in your marriage, that's been something that you had to work through. But even in my relationship, um, in, in just being the first relationship that I've had, uh, just really discovering all of the things that, um, that I needed to work on with myself and when it comes to even just emotionally and, and mentally and you know what I mean and and just that relationship between just being able to follow Christ but also being able to mature emotionally and mentally so it, yeah I would love to hear um, just tell us a little bit about how that process was for you yeah so I mean we planted a church the church was growing things were going well uh, you know, we were in New England, which isn't exactly friend, friendly to church planning. And, you know, we'd seen hundreds of people come to Christ. Good things were happening, but our marriage was really struggling. My wife got to a place where she didn't really even like me anymore. 
And, you know, typical, I think for lots of us, when we get to a difficult place in a relationship, you know, we start praying for the other person to change, you know, God fix them, heal them, deliver them, whatever they need, like, you know, make this thing better. But you can never fix a relational problem by focusing on the other person's issues. That's just never going to resolve the issue. And again, I just said to you, it takes two healthy people to have a healthy relationship. So, you know, scale of one to 10, if you're a three or a four in terms of your emotional and spiritual health, the healthiest relationship you can ever have is a three or a four. So you're going to get pretty stuck until you become a healthier person and start having healthier interactions. So that occurred to me on the journey. And so instead of fixing on Jen, I started fixing on getting healthier. And, you know, it's elevated the water level in the conversations and uh, started, you know, drawing us into healthier practices with one another, healthier relational patterns and interactions, because I was becoming healthier and she started taking the journey with me. And as I said before, now we've been married 30 years and, you know, it's been the best five year run of our life. So we're on the right journey. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, when it comes to like those principles and things that you learned in being able to have a better relationship, um, of course, I know that that relates to um, soul care, uh, just the principle, the seven principles that were given in the book. So um, could you give a, a bit of a breakdown of those principles and how that yeah. actually helped? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I like to say these are like the inviolable principles of the soul. So think to, with me in a parallel way for a second about the laws of nature. Think about the law of gravity. The law of gravity is just a fact. You don't get to violate it if you choose to violate it because you still have a free will. If you choose to violate it, you don't get to choose the consequences of violating it. If you jump off a 10-story building, you will fall. You don't get to choose what happens when you hit the bottom. That's not your choice. You only get to choose whether or not you violate the principle. It's the same with the principles of the soul. There's just certain principles of the soul. And when we violate them, it's like Paul says, the law of the harvest. You sow apple seeds, you reap an apple tree. But if you sow weed seeds, you're going to reap, you know, some sort of weedy harvest. So you have to think about what you're investing, sowing into this relationship. So for me, for example, these big principles, first principle really is about identity. It's about what you believe about yourself. You'll never rise above your belief system about yourself. You know, bottom line is if you really struggle to understand who you are in God's eyes, that you're created in his image, that you're deeply loved, that he loved you so much, he sent his son for you. If you don't start to value yourself the way God values you, your devaluation of yourself is going to bring disintegration to your relationships. There's no doubt about it, because you're going to start acting out of that broken space. Uh, so that's the first big thing. Your identity is like a foundation of a building. If you have a faulty foundation, I don't care how good the builder, how good the building material, that building's in jeopardy. Yeah. So that's the first big one. You know, a couple others I'll just give you as examples. But one of the ones that I talk about is walking in the light with God and others. It's about repentance. Uh, biblically speaking, that'd be the word for it. Yeah. And here's the bottom line. All repentance is, if I can simplify, 
is to simply bring yourself back into alignment with God. When our life is in alignment with God, with his ways and doings, our life works better. God's not a big ogre who has a bunch of ideas out there. You must do this. You can't do that because he wants to control you. He's the creator. You know, if you buy a car, you ought to read the manual and figure out what they say. If they tell you to put five quarts of oil in your car and you ignore that, your car is going to have massive problems. Your engine's going to break down and seize because the creator knows how it works. He designed it, right? Well, it's the same with this. God's designed you. He knows what's best. He's not throwing arbitrary rules out because he's trying to be a controlling dictator. He's a good father, loves you, knows what's best. When our life is in alignment with his ways and doings, our life works better. And that's why he calls us into repentance. So our life will be fulfilling, free and full. Uh, so that's the second big principle. It's a principle of repentance, walking in the light with God and others. Uh, the reality on that, you have secrets, it decays your soul. You could choose to have secrets. You can keep things to yourself, all these secret patterns and so forth, these things you've done that you have shame over. But if you keep that stuff in your heart and soul, you'll have shame. And it will end up becoming a barrier in intimacy between you and God and you and others. So you can't violate these principles without consequence. And that's really the point. And uh, so those are a couple of examples. I'll just walk through the other ones real fast without any explanation. The third principle that really that I talk about is about forgiving those who sin against you. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody gets hurt. You got to forgive. If you don't, it's going to disease your soul. I talk about overcoming fear. Mm -hmm. The reality is the number one command in scripture is do not be afraid or fear not for I am with you. Uh, people make disastrous choices during times of fear. You can either act on fear, you can act on faith, you can't act on both. You have to choose. And that's why God's constantly calling us to act on faith in alignment with his ways and doings and not let fear dictate our lives. I also talk about family sin patterns. Um, the most difficult sin patterns for us to break in our own life are the ones that have been reinforced over and over in our families. Those are super hard ones. They sometimes show up different in the next generation than the previous generation, you know. First generation's a bunch of addicts, you know, drug addicts, alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. Second generation becomes hooked on religion and legalistic. Well, it's still an expression of the addiction. Or they become a workaholic. They've never dealt with the roots of the addiction, right? So you got to deal with the roots. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, that the mouth speaks, the person acts, et cetera. So you got to deal with the heart stuff. With demonic issues and get rid of demonic issues and uh and i talk about healing wounds so how do you you know overcome these traumatic events in our life that have left us deeply wounded and we often end up acting out of those wounded places so th those are the big principles that i cover in the book yeah yeah wow it's very very powerful um the, one of the ones that really has stood out to me even just hearing it again uh was the one about fear and and the reason why is because just as we talked about before we went live here just COVID, um, just everything that's been going on um, in our world, it's, it's, it's literally a once in a generation, once in a lifetime uh, pandemic. And it's just something that you can't really prepare for mentally, you can't really prepare for emotionally, spiritually, whatever. And so I know that a lot of us, 
have dealt with fear, whether it's fear of whether I'm going to catch it, fear of, of, you know, all the different what ifs that can come up, you know, how long this is going to be, um, you know, even fear when it comes to exposing us ourselves personally and, and, and what we think that we're capable of, uh, of doing and, and, and making of ourselves. And so, you know, can you share with us, like, what were the things that you went through personally during this season of COVID? And, and also just to be able to share, um, what do you see God doing during this pandemic? And, and, and we can go, yeah, we can go on from there. All right. So, um, first, uh, it was probably April. Uh, I was home here. Everybody was home. <laughs> you know, you couldn't do anything. And so all my conferences had been canceled. Uh, so from the first week in March, all the way through till the end of October, you know, so that's how I make my living. I mean, I'm a full-time seminary professor, but the reality is you can't really make enough money teaching in a grad school to, to live in New York. I mean, just, you know, unless you're teaching in a, in maybe a, in a secular grad school or something, but not, not at ATS. And so you have to, you know, supplement. So my main source of income is actually conferences, selling books, et cetera. And all of it canceled, right? Mm -hmm. Then on top of that, you know, the book sales, like Soul Care alone, not counting all the rest of my books, Soul Care was distributing about 350 books a week at, at bookstores, including Amazon. Went from 350 the week before COVID to 30 after wow. COVID. I mean, so, you know, think about the economic ramifications and, and there's a slim profit uh, margin on books, you know, so you don't make a ton of money off of books. It's a pretty slim profit margin, but I went from a slim profit margin on 350 to a slim profit margin on 30. Uh, that's a big difference, you know. So anyhow, all of a sudden, I'm feeling all these economic pressures and all this stuff. And my wife comes to me one day and she says to me, are you irritated with me? I said, no, I'm not irritated with you, but I am definitely irritated. And she goes, why? And I said, it's just all the financial pressure. And really what it is, is it's fear. I'm feeling financial fears. And, uh, you know, for me, I don't usually feel afraid. I didn't say I'm not afraid. I just don't feel that. What I feel is anger, irritation, grumpy. So my symptoms when I am afraid look like power symptoms rather than, you know, sort of weak or cowering symptoms, just the way I'm wired. And so anyways, you know, what do you do when you have that kind of stuff? And the reality is you can't change the situation, I have no control over this, so what do you do? Well, first, you really have to sink deep roots in heaven. Mm -hmm. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Well, there's an implication of that. I'm not first and foremost an American. I'm not first and foremost a Democrat or a Republican. I am first and foremost a citizen of an eternal kingdom. Now, Paul so understood that, not cognitively, he so deeply integrated it into his life that in Philippians, right, he's in jail and he's, he's got these guys who are out there, false teachers, they're proclaiming the gospel specifically, he says, so that it will get him in trouble. They have a false motive. They want him to get more persecution. And he makes this comment to the church at Philippi, he goes, 
I don't care if they do proclaim the gospel out of false motives. So long as people get to hear about Jesus, I'm good with that. And then he makes this ridiculous statement in Philippians 1 verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Yeah, you know, what do you do with a guy like Paul? You can't stop Paul. Why? Because he's so deeply rooted in heaven, nothing on earth throws him. He's got a deep, heavenly rooting. One of the things I know about Jesus is this. Jesus is never nervous. He hasn't had a nervous day in the last 2,000 years. And I got to tell you, 2020 hasn't been his year to be nervous. He hasn't been sitting up in heaven in 2020, wringing his hands and going, oh, no, what am I going to do? I never knew this was going to happen. He's just not. So what I can tell you is this. When I lose my peace, it's because I'm out of alignment with the Prince of Peace. Fear has a way of bringing my eyes off of Jesus and my heavenly throne room position, my eternal citizenship, and bringing my eyes onto myself, my circumstances, my resources, my capabilities and capacities. Fear makes it way too much about us. Fear makes us selfish, self-focused, and self-serving. Think with me about the beginning, Lamar, when, when we hit this COVID thing, you go to a store, you can't buy toilet paper. Yeah. Why? Because everybody's hoarding. Why? Because that's what fear does. Fear makes you selfish. I go to a local grocery store around here and, and you know, there's signs up, don't hoard. There's enough for everybody. If you just don't hoard, right? People are driving shopping carts full of toilet paper through the store. They don't need that much paper, okay? <laughs> Why? Because they're fear-based, and that makes you selfish. So part of what you have to do is you've got to get your roots sunk deep. You've got to get your eyes back on Jesus, who's not nervous. And then you need to surrender what you have to surrender. Mm. And for me, you know, my last thing, I, I had to do what I could do. You know, one of the things that fear does is it paralyzes you. You start to think, oh, you know, I can't do anything. What am I going to do? I can't make money. You know, and you make it, again, you're making it too much about you. You get a set of the poor me's. Do what you can do. So for me, I mean, I'm like, oh, all my conferences are canceled. Book sales are in the toilet. So, heck, I think I better do some live streaming. Well, I've never done live streaming. I have no idea what I'm doing. And it's just Jen and I. I mean, there's nobody else helping us out around here, you know, so... I, you know, I mean, we sat around, talked about it one day, and I said, I think we should live stream. So she gets up on the computer and starts Googling, you know, YouTube videos on how to live stream. And two weeks later, we do our first live stream event, right? I didn't know if it would work. Bottom line, you do what you can do. Don't let fear paralyze you. Do something. And so, you know, trust God. Hold on to his promises, but gosh, do what you can do. What are you responsible for? Do that at least. You're not a victim. You might have been victimized, but you're not a victim. Not in Christ, you're not. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Amen. Yeah, and that, and that goes back to your identity point too. Um, when you look at what you're going through, you're victimized, but not a victim. So that, that's good. Absolutely. How's the response has been with the, the um, virtual, uh, the live streaming? You know, Lamar, it was great in the beginning because... 
you know, it was new, it was novel, you know, and a lot of people weren't doing it right away, right? So we had great responses, but it's, it's like a business. And it is, I mean, you know, church stuff is, even though it's nonprofit, it's still very much, there, there's business parallels, right? So to use a business terminology, you know, you hit market saturation. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to expand your market if you're going to be able to reach new people. So yeah, we hit some of that. So we had to get creative again. And again, you could sit back, feel like a victim, go, oh, now what? there's nothing I can do. I'm like, oh, okay. So probably what I need to do is I need to call some people who I know. I mean, I know thousands of pastors. I just need to call some of them and go, hey, are you interested in doing, sponsoring a soul care conference at your church? And, you know, I ended up with people that sponsored it. And, you know, I was able to pay the bills. So we're doing good. That's awesome. God knows he's smart. Theology 101, Lamar. God is smart. He knows stuff we don't know. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, And so just in speaking um, just about the ministry aspect a little bit more, um, I know that many people, like, like I mentioned to you earlier, they're, they're fearful and, or they don't understand what deliverance is. And, you know, they have all kinds of perspectives on it. And, you know, you, you even see, you know, exorcisms glamorized in Hollywood or, or whatever. Um, but kind of like, what are the biggest misconceptions that you faced in your ministry about deliverance? And how have you actually responded and dealt with that? Yeah, so, I mean, there is a lot of fear around the topic, but one of the things you have to face is that there's a worldview issue going on here. So let me just explain it really quick in, in, uh, in a couple of different ways. First, um, most of us grew up with a modern worldview, right? And, you know, uh, the easiest way for me to illustrate the dramatic worldview shift that has taken place in my lifetime is with my Scooby-Doo theory, right? So uh, Scooby-Doo, of course, cartoon. Scooby's a dog. He has garbled speech because he's a cartoon. He occasionally talks. He's got a group of teenagers, you know, Freddie, Daphne, Velma, and, and Shaggy, who own him, and they're trying to solve mysteries. That's the premise of the cartoon. So every show, it began in 1968. By the way, the reason why this works as an example is because it's the longest running TV show in the history of TV, right? So the first episode begins in 1968. I'm 55. So I was three years old when this thing came out. Well, the reality is the last episode of Scooby-Doo that was written was 2020. There was a Scooby-Doo movie, okay? I mean, this thing's been running every year since 1968. So as the world has changed their view of spiritual things, the show has demonstrated the worldview shift. So 1968, here was how every cartoon worked. There was a ghost at the beginning of the ghost. 22 and a half minutes later, Scooby and his teenage sleuths discovered the ghost wasn't really a ghost. The ghost was just a bad guy dressed up as a ghost. Okay. Listen, that's not innocuous. They're teaching you worldview. That's a modern worldview. So what are they teaching you? Behind every apparent supernatural phenomenon is a natural explanation because the supernatural doesn't exist, or if it does, it doesn't interact with the natural. That's what they taught. That's what we grew up with. 
So therefore, there was a debunking of spiritual interaction like demons. That's just crazy. It's really just psychology. It's really not evil spirits. It's just mental illness. They just didn't understand. By the way, you read this stuff in commentaries by theologians, studied scholars of the Bible, but no offense, but at the end of the day, are you really believing that you're smarter than Jesus? Because Jesus had enough wisdom to discern between a psychological problem and a demonic problem, and he cast out demons. He did it because he knew it was necessary. Now, we'll come back to the biblical worldview in a second, but just to end the Scooby-Doo illustration, let me just uh, speed up the clock. About 1994, somewhere in that ballpark, I was over a friend's house. There's a, a little kid there. Little kid wanders off into the other room. I, he turns on the TV. I hear Scooby-Doo music. Well, I happen to love Scooby-Doo. It's my favorite cartoon. So I wander off into the other room. I sit down next to the kid. I got my coffee. He's got his cake. We're sitting down. We're watching Scooby. There's a ghost. Well, there's always a ghost. It's Scooby-Doo, right? This time, though, at the end of the cartoon, the ghost was still a ghost. And I went, rut row. <laughs> Someone has just taught a new generation of children that behind an apparent supernatural phenomenon is an actual supernatural being. Mm -hmm. Oh, that changed the world. By the way, around the same time, there was a little book series came out. You might have heard of it. It's called Harry Potter. Happened to sell more books than any book series in the history of the world. And it teaches a very supernatural worldview where you can interact with the supernatural. Fastest growing religion among 16 to 24-year-olds during that time frame, which Harry Potter was targeting, 16 to 24-year-olds, was Wiccan, which is a combination of witchcraft and paganology. Why? Because you just taught a new generation of children that behind an apparent supernatural phenomenon is an actual supernatural being, and you can interact with it. Well, listen, I'm just going to say, that's a little bit closer to the spiritual worldview that Jesus grew up with. What they're missing, of course, is that there's a king at the center of this universe known as Jesus, who alone is good amongst these spiritual entities that other people worship. And, uh, and he's the king. And there is no competition for his throne room. That's the piece that's missing. So deliverance, just a biblical worldview. You know, Jesus does deliverance. The disciples do deliverance. Uh, he commanded the disciples to teach us to obey everything he commanded them, which includes deliverance. So it should be part of the church, but the reality is most of us grew up in churches where either A, there was no deliverance, or B, it was done really, really poorly. And that's the other interfering part of seeing this stuff happen. One, we had a worldview that said that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Or two, we grew up in a church or knew of churches near us where this stuff just was done really poorly. And so, you know, people went, this bogus, hocus pocus. It's not good. It's not healthy. And then you have a lot of people that are afraid. They're afraid. I mean, literally, Lamar, I'll be sitting in a room sometimes with people and, you know, I mean, they know I do this stuff, right? I mean, I've written books. So like, I'm like a ghostbuster, right? A real live ghostbuster. And so 
I go to rooms and people start asking questions. There are literally people in the room that are so fearful when the topic comes up that they get up and leave, that they can't stay in the room. They're scared to death, okay? No offense, but that's ridiculous. That means you have no idea who you are in Christ. And you have more focus and faith in the enemy than you do in Jesus. Do you think Jesus was nervous about demonic spirits? Heck no. When I do deliverance sometimes, you know, the person that has a demon manifest, you know, the demon's very strong and it manifests in them and they're shaking and they can feel this thing moving inside of them and they're scared to death. And I'll look at them in there, man, there's tears in their eyes and you could tell in their eyes, they are terrified. And I will look at them and I say, look me in the eye. And they'll look at me and I'll go, do I look nervous to you? And they're like, no. And I'm like, I've done this over 10,000 times. Let me let you in on a little secret. Jesus always wins. You don't need to be nervous. Just keep your eyes on me and I will give you strength as I keep my eyes on Jesus. And together, let's keep our eyes on Jesus and fight this battle. But fear is a huge factor with this stuff. There's a whole bunch of crazy thoughts about it. And it, religion is so fear-based. So you get crazy thoughts. Like I have people in conferences ask me stuff like this. Well, if you do a deliverance, aren't you going to get attacked by the demonic spirit? I'm like, no, no, you're not going to get attacked. Jesus does deliverance. You ever see Jesus nervous about being attacked by a demon? No, come on. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's so fear-based. And whenever you hear fear-based questions, or you listen to fear-based superstitious teaching, you know that's religion. It's not Jesus. Because Jesus isn't nervous. That's good. And, um, you know, so when you, like, speak to these individuals that do have this fear and and, you know, like, how do you, you know, help to comfort them or like to give, to give like a, a, a like a, a more of an understanding of how that process works. Like, so if, say if the person does have a biblical worldview of it, but they still, you know, have seen, like you said, different churches and different places where they do it in a certain way and it, it's not really either not effective or it's just demonstrative or it's whatever, like, like kind of kind of walk us through a little bit like how does that how would you ex actually explain that yeah so first of all when there's fear again try to get their eyes on jesus jesus really isn't nervous when i'm nervous i'm out of alignment with him so i can just tell you right now as soon as you're fear-based you're not you're not in connection proper alignment with jesus something's amiss in your soul so deal with it mm -hmm. recognize your fear base and go to jesus with faith stop acting in fear Listen, when you act on fear, you reinforce fear at the center of your being. You can either act on fear or you can act on faith. You mm -hmm. cannot act on both at the same time. You must choose. You can act on faith while you feel afraid, mm -hmm. but you can't act on both. If you continue to act on faith, eventually you will no longer feel afraid. That is what happens because you're, when you're acting on faith, you're strengthening your faith and you're weakening your fear. 
okay? So you got to get that first. Get your eyes on Jesus. Get into alignment with Jesus. Second, a lot of this stuff's really about bad methodology, okay? The test of good methodology is pretty simple. First, does it get the demons out? Second, do they stay out once they've been cast out? If they, if they get out and stay out, then you're in a, at least you're starting in a good direction. Third thing I would say with good methodology is, is it pastoral? Meaning, does it treat the person with dignity, respect, and love? Think about Jesus when he treats people and interacts with people in the Gospels, whether they're sick or whether they're leaders or whether they're rich or whether they're poor or whether they're, you know, demonized. He treats people with dignity and respect. He loves people. And so this is really important to me. It's got to have a pastoral tone to the methodology. And sometimes I see methodologies that are either, you know, not pastoral. They're not loving. They don't preserve people's dignity and respect. Or honestly, they just don't work. You know, I was in, I was in Harlem, Lamar, one day, and, and I was talking to a pastor. I, I was at this church, and it was a Sunday morning. I was speaking. A demon manifest in the, in the church. I ended up doing the deliverance. This girl was born in a family uh, that was deeply involved in, in Santeria. And so she'd been dedicated to, you know, Santeria witchcraft uh, in a Latin American context. And uh, so, you know, she'd been dedicated, uh, she, she'd been abused as part of the dedication ceremony. There was some sexual abuse there. She'd been raped or, and or molested eight times. She's 21. Wow. 21, right? So every horrible, terrible, bad thing that can happen to a human, this girl suffered through. She's 21 years old. I end up cleaning her up, doing her deliverance. Afterwards, I had a conversation with the bishop, who's just a gem of a guy. He's a humble Christ follower. He's a dear, dear soul. And I just said to him, I said, Bishop, you've got to do deliverance, man. Your people are coming out of these kinds of atmospheres, right? Witchcraft, abuse, etc." He looks at me, he goes, we try. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, he goes, they manifest. He goes, we know that's demonic. So he said, we go over and we go, come out, come out, come out. And I go, what happens? He goes, they get up and run. I said, what do you do? He goes, we run after them and tackle them. I go, Bishop, wow. you're not doing deliverance. You're doing hand-to-hand -hand combat. He laughs. He goes, I know. And I go, you're getting a little old for that. He goes, I am. And I go, how's it working? He goes, it's not. The next week they come back and we do it all over again. Mm -hmm. So hear me for a second. Here's a guy. He's a sincere guy. He's a dear soul. He loves Jesus, right? And he's trying. He sees a manifestation. He knows it's demonic. He's trying, but he doesn't know what to do and he can't get him free. Okay. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's really good people just have bad methodology. Right. And if they could get some real good methodology that would just help them to actually address the demonic spirit, kick it out, close every access point so the thing can't return, and it stayed out, people get free. That's what Jesus did. So we need methodology. That's solid. So that's one of the things I cover in soul care. I talk about not just deliverance, but I talk about, you know, good methodology and what it looks like and how you could do it. Right, right. Yeah, man. And, and I, I, you know, and we'll, 
move on a little bit, but I just want to ask one more question about uh, just the deliverance. I know that um, in the book you did speak about how I think you witnessed like believers actually needing deliverance. And so I know there's like a lot of controversy like re regarding that. So how did you learn like in your experience about Christians dealing with that and able to see in the Bible and the scriptures? How did yeah, so um, one of the things that I would say, Lamar, is, you know, again, our worldview has messed up our biblical lenses. Our Western worldview has messed up our biblical lenses. Now, just think with me about worldview again for a second, but let me use an example biblically and just show you how we're missing stuff all the time in the Bible because our Western view doesn't allow us to see into what's actually taking place. We've always just assumed when you come to faith, and look, by the way, I grew up with this too, right? So the church I was raised in would have thought that when someone crossed the line of faith, put their faith in Jesus, that the demons would have left them. Like the Holy Spirit and a demonic sphere can't live in the same place at the same time. That's the kind of stuff I would have been taught too, right? All right. Yeah, me too, right? So now let's actually think about the Bible for a second. And let me just use one example, right? But I, I literally, I do a deliverance training workshop. I teach through this stuff in soul care conferences, and I'll spend like 30 minutes or 40 minutes talking through apologetics on this subject. In a deliverance training workshop, I spend a lot of time with this. So think with me about Ephesus for a second, right? Paul comes to the church at Ephesus. And there's a group of believers there. They're not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the place where he prays for them to be filled with the Spirit. Um, he's doing evangelism. People are coming to faith in Christ. Good things are going on. Uh, all of a sudden, the church is growing, but something's not quite right, and that's because of the background. So let me tell you the background. Ephesus is a pluralistic, syncretistic society, much like the U.S. today. That is, you know, that they worship many different deities, and they added these things and mixed these things together like a big stew pot, right? So, for example, in their 50 deities, their chief deity would have been Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the Diana cultus of the, uh, uh, you know, first century era. And Artemis of the Ephesians, they called the church at Ephesus, the people there, would have called her Lord and Savior. The exact same Greek words we use for Jesus. So Paul comes to town. He's preaching Jesus is Lord and Savior. So you know what they do? They add Jesus to their plethora of deities. They just throw him into the stew pot. Now, how do I know that? Because I read the Bible. And I actually read it without my Western worldview to try to interfere with what's going on. There's an incident that occurs, Acts chapter 19, the seven sons of Sceva incident. Remember that story? Oh, yeah story about the Jewish high priest kids who are doing deliverance in Jesus' name, whom Paul preaches about, because yeah. they don't know Jesus. And one day they run into a guy, and the guy is supernaturally empowered by demonic spirits, and he jumps on these seven men, beats them, they run away naked, bloodied, and battered, running down the street for their lives, right? Two things Luke tells us in the book of Acts happened as a result. First, he says the town of Ephesus was in awe of the name of Jesus. You know what? All of a sudden, the people outside the church, he's talking about non-believers, they're like, Jesus is not the same as the rest of these that are out there. 
there's mm -hmm. something different about Jesus. Okay, right. so they're starting to come to awareness. But the second thing that happens is stunning. You ready? The church took their magic scrolls, their sorcery practices, and they burned all their sorcery magic scrolls to the tune of, if it were in New York, where we are right now, right, to the tune of 12 to $14 million of modern day money worth of magic scrolls. Pause. Those are the believers who were still practicing sorcery in secret. Why? Because they were syncretists. Listen, Paul's not an idiot. Paul's a smart guy. He knew that was going on. This is why he writes to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is another syncretistic, pluralistic church. He writes to them, listen, no one, and he's talking about prophecy, prophetic utterance, a word inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? A manifestation of a supernatural piece of knowledge that comes from a spiritual realm. That's what he's talking about. He writes to them in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. He says, no one can speak by the Holy Spirit except that they will say Jesus is Lord. No one can say by the Holy Spirit Jesus is accursed. Now, why would he write that? because there was some of that going on in their body. Why? Because they were pluralistic, syncretistic. There were still secret practices, just like Ephesus, and there were still demonic spirits in their midst. And what he was saying was, listen, gang, when you get some manifestation, you need to test that to see if that's authentically from the Lord. Wow. And if it's not, then cast that thing out. That's what he's dealing with in that context. So, you know, we don't have eyes to see this stuff because our worldview has messed us up. There's not a single verse in the Bible that says Christians can't be demonized, which I'll also say there's not a single verse that talks about Christians can be demonized. Uh, part of our problem is our terminology. We use the word possessed in our English translations. Possession implies ownership, but that's a terrible translation of the Greek. The Greek word is demonization. It has to do with influence. It has nothing to do with possession. Right. And the reality is demons can live in a person. They can embody a person, have access inside of a person, and create influence inside of a person. But the person can still be a follower of Jesus. Um, I, I like to use this analogy, and with this one I'll quit, but oh, sure. I like to use this analogy. Your soul is like a suitcase, right? I travel all the time. When I go to take a trip, I take a nice, neat, clean group of clothes with me for that trip. I get there, I iron them, hang them up, etc. On the way back, though, they're all dirty. Before I can take my next trip, I got to unpack the dirty before mm -hmm. I can put in new, clean clothes, okay? This is what Paul meant when he said you have to take off the old before you can put on the new, Ephesians chapter 4. He's talking about unpacking, right? Now, work with me for a second. When you came to faith in Christ, all of your sin wasn't eradicated. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says you have everything you need in the heavenly realms. In 1 Peter, no, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says you have everything you need for a life of godliness. But in 1 John chapter 1, he says you still have sin. And if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar and you call God a liar. Okay, now work with me, which is true. 
Is it true that when you came to faith in Christ, you have everything you need to live a godly life? Absolutely. Both Paul in Ephesians and Peter in 2 Peter 1, both testify to that fact. But yet, you still have sin, according to John, 1 John chapter 1. And that's also true. So what's going on? Well, discipleship really comes down to two things. First, you have to give God access. God shines light into the suitcase of my soul. Sometimes he shines light on sin. My job is to stand in the light with God and others and go, yeah, God, that's true about me. Not to spin it, justify, rationalize, deny, excuse, blame, but to own it, take responsibility for it, to stand in the light, right? That's the first key to discipleship, giving God access. Here's the cool part. When you give God access, you gain access to the victories of Jesus that he has won for us are in the storehouses of heaven in the heavenly realms. I don't gain that access unless I give away access. So I give access, then I gain access. But you know what? That doesn't guarantee the victory. I have to learn, second part of discipleship, I have to learn how to appropriate the victories of Jesus in my life. This is why discipleship is a process of walking out the victories of Jesus in your life. That's really what it is. I'm giving access. I'm gaining access. I'm learning the tools of the kingdom to appropriate the victory of Jesus. I'm starting to walk it out. You with me? Yeah. Now, why would we assume that though Jesus clearly did not eradicate all our sin when we came to faith in Christ, he gave us victory. He gave us access to victory over sin, but he didn't eradicate it. Why would he assume he eradicated all the demons? Mm. Wow. That's crazy talk. Mm -hmm. It's part of discipleship. Mm -hmm. And that's the testimony of the New Testament church. By the way, church history also testifies to this. Early church fathers talk about the fact that deliverance ministry was done in the church on believers. Mm, wow. Wow. And it's something that you don't really hear talked about often. And it's, it's interesting, too, because even this morning, speaking of uh, First Corinthians, I was actually reading um, about where uh, Paul was explaining in, I think, chapter 10, uh, he was explaining about Israel and how God was doing things in Israel, but then they they went and they was engaged in sexual immorality and doing all these things. And it, it caused them to, because they were idolatrous, he judged them for it. And he was literally saying the same thing to believers to not be idolatrous. Absolutely, because he knew they were still practicing those secret things. Listen, Paul's not an idiot. I'm telling you, the guy knew what was going on, right? right. But he also understood that discipleship is a process. It's not an event. And you know what? Our job, when we're working with people that are new believers and they still have sin in their lives, our job isn't to judge them, condemn them, shame them. Jesus never does that, man. He loves people with all of our brokenness. Our job is to love them where they are and walk with them to the place where they start to give God access and gain the victory over those areas of their life. But the church really has done a really poor job of this. That's the sad part. And you know the sad part about that, Lamar? We're leaving people in bondage. I agree. I agree. This definitely will be very helpful to just have an understanding, um, you know, myself personally, and for just many of us, I'm in the body of Christ. Um, so when did you learn about how integrated the soul, the body, and the spirit were? Because like you said, you know, many of us have a Western mindset on these kinds of things. And it kind of impacts like how we look at deliverance, uh, it impacts, you know, how we look at mental health, you know, like emo our emotional health, you know, our, 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 the cognitive distortions um, that we may go through. And then the relationship between um, just 
the spiritual realm and the, and the bondages that happen where deliverance is, is needed. So how did you kind of learn how the integrations were? Yeah, part of it was just because I hit my own broken space in my marriage, knew I needed to get healthy. And as I started getting healthy on stuff, you know, I mean, I read books. I literally, I stood in my office one day and I said to the Lord, I've been to church my whole life and I don't know how to change. All church ever said is do this, don't do that. No one really helped me with deep life change. And now here's the reality. I need deep life change that leads to authentic freedom and transformation. But I don't know how to get there. Yeah. And I said, so you can, you can give me a word, a supernatural revelatory word from the spirit. You can, you can lead me to a passage in scripture, or you can lead me to a book on my shelf. I had a huge library. You can lead me to a book by somebody that knows stuff more than I know. And one day that happened actually twice. I prayed that same prayer in those days. And one of the times the Lord led me to a book by a woman named Leanne Payne. And, uh, you know, she's got uh, a real funky kind of background, you know, I mean, it's, she was high church, liturgical Lutheran. She's also charismatic. And, you know, I, I grew up in an evangelical camp, right? So she had that char charismatic piece. She had this Lutheran piece and she was trained in psychology. And so she had this real broad mix and I read her stuff, and that led me to read more stuff. It was on my journey towards wholeness that I discovered some of this. And, you know, in my own journey towards the power of God, experiencing his presence and power, I mean, some of this stuff just came through revelation. You know, I'm, I'm praying for people, and I, they got back pain, for example. And, you know, I go to listen. I just wait on the Lord. I never just launch into words. I listen. And when the Holy Spirit gives something to me, I test it humbly. That's what prophecy is supposed to be, right? So I'm listening, and the Lord would say to me, for example, sometimes bitterness. And I just look at the person who I'm praying for with back pain, and I say, I hear the word bitterness. Does that mean anything to you? The first time it happened, the lady looks at me, and she goes, I hate my mother. I go, well, that would count for yes. sure. <laughs> And so she's like, I said, are you willing to forgive her? She's like, yeah. So she prays to forgive her mother and her back pain went away. I didn't even need to pray for it. Oh. Well, I mean, you see enough things like that happen. And I could tell you stuff about anxiety that way, depression that way, panic attacks that way, that were connected directly to sin. Now, please hear me. All anxiety is not correct, connected directly to sin. In other words, somebody sinned, now they have anxiety. That's not what I mean. I can also tell you, I've done deliverance on people who had anxiety their entire life. And as soon as I did deliverance, boom, the anxiety was gone. All anxiety is not demonic. It can be physical. It can be emotional. It can be psychological. It can be demonic. You know, so you have to really discern. But having done lots and lots of ministry, listening to the Holy Spirit, I learned a lot of wisdom. And I'd, I saw stuff. I mean, you couldn't argue with it. Yeah. Lord, like that scenario. I mean, you know, when that lady forgave her mom, her back pain left her. She never had it again. She was headed for back surgery, right? Done. Over. And uh, so you see some stuff like that. You start to put things together and go, okay, there's, there's more going on out there than presents, you know, just as physical. There's something beneath that. Right. So you always have to get to the roots. What's underneath that? That's good. That's good. Yeah, man. And, and, um, one of the last questions I would like to ask is, you know, I was just really thinking about this just because of everything that's happened with the election. And, and you know, one of the things that uh, President-elect Joe Biden had mentioned was, you know, 
about the soul of the nation. So do you think that the principles for soul care applies to an entire nation as well? Um, you know, how does the nation's health, um, you know, the nation's soul, if you will, um, impacts us individually, impacts us as a community? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, the nation, obviously the nation doesn't have a soul like a person, right? right. right. But think about Deuteronomy for a second, right? In Deuteronomy, he talks about sin patterns. And he says the sins of the parents visit their children, right? But he's talking about that with regard to families, tribes, clans, nations, mm -hmm. okay? The reality is the sins of a nation or a territory or a region or a family can deeply impact the family negatively. Again, think of this principle of access. Let me talk about the biblical principle of access. You are a spiritual being in a spiritual world. You are always giving away spiritual access. You do not get to choose if you give away access. You only get to choose to whom you give away access. Right. If you pick up the tools of the kingdom of light, you are giving access to the king of light, Jesus. But if you pick up the tools of the kingdom of darkness, you are giving access to the evil one. That's how it works. So for example, let me use one example. Let's use a family for a second. Let's say a family has been deeply hurt and they pick up bitterness. All right, well, bitterness is not a tool of the kingdom of light or the king of light. It is a tool of the kingdom of darkness. Jesus told us we are to bless those who curse us, forgive those who sin against us, love our enemies, right? He's pretty clear on this. So if you're gonna give Jesus access, you must forgive. You must bless those who curse you. If you choose to hold on to bitterness, hold grudges, resentment, etc., you are actually giving the enemy access. Well, when that happens over generations and generations, and you and I both know families that have long generational patterns of addiction, bitterness, hatred, etc., anger, right? Yeah. Well, guess what? It gets a deep set pattern in the family and leads to other forms of dysfunctional expressions in that family tree, right? Same thing with a territory, a nation, a region. So I pastored in New England, right? New England was the birthplace of the rebellion against England. Right. In all my life traveling around the world, I have never been to any place that has as much rebellion as New England. Wow. Why? Because it was the birthplace of rebellion and it got deeply seated in family after family after family after family in that region. And is a deep seated rebellion there. So listen, here's a funny story, but it's, 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 I do think it's indicative of what's going on there in the spiritual realm. Okay. In New England, you can hardly drive a mile without hitting another coffee shop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Never in my life have ever seen so many coffee shops as in New England. Why? Because it was part of the Boston Tea Party. Right. They rebelled against tea and they opted for coffee and coffee became a sign of rebellion to New Englanders. You tracking with me? Yeah. So now it's deeply set in the behavior. Well, here's the thing you have to understand. When the nation has lots of generational sins, it is going to create strongholds of the enemy over the nation. 
And that has to be repented of in order for that to be broken. This is why you see in the Old Testament, Daniel, for example, or Nehemiah, for example, praying over the sins of their ancestors. They didn't participate in those. Right. They're praying what is called identificational repentance, right? They are identifying with the sins of their ancestors and repenting on behalf of their forefathers. Listen, that's what Jesus did. He walks into the waters of baptism. It's a baptism for repentance. The guy never sinned. Yeah. <laughs> it's identificational. He dies on the cross. Paul says, he who became righteous, he who was righteous, became sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God. That's identificational repentance. He didn't do any wrong, yet he identified with us and his prayers for us and his actions for us are identificational repentance to break that pattern of sin in our lives. We need to do the same thing for the people around us, our neighborhoods, our nation, etc., in order to break these kinds of things that have happened, racism, rebellion, addiction in our areas, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful, powerful. And uh, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so just as we prepare to end this, um, would love for you to just share about your ministry, um, any way that um, my audience can support you, um, your social media, um, any, any ways to contact you. Yeah, so um, we have a website out there. It's called renewalinternational.org, www.renewalinternational.org. And, um, you know, my whole thing is fighting for revival. That's really what my life's all about. I just live for revival. Soul care ultimately is a means for revival. I've written six books. One of the books I've written uh, this year was a book called Calm in the Storm, which is dealing with uh, the crisis of 2020. And it's really the bigger principle. How can God redeem a crisis in our life? And in this case, specifically, I think God could redeem this for renewal in the church if the church will respond properly. And so that's what that one's about. We do conferences, workshops, you know, all kinds of different stuff. I've written six books. We have uh, Soul Care out there as a DVD series and Vimeo. I'm actually doing a course right now, two e-courses, one on Soul Care and another one for people that want to practice Soul Care to help others get free. So we're working on stuff all the time. Sign up for our newsletter. Go out on our website. Sign up for our newsletter. And uh, yeah, I'm out on all social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff, Twitter, and I'd uh, love to have you come join us, sign up for our newsletter. That tells you whenever we have anything new coming out, whenever we're doing conferences, wherever I am around the world, what I'm doing, et cetera. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Riemer, for your time. I really appreciate just the conversation that we've been able to have here. Um, and just for everybody else tuning in, um, just remember to celebrate the process of thought and God's hand in it. You can reach Thoughts of Redemption by email at thoughtsofredemption at gmail.com. Uh, for social media, Instagram is, is Thoughts of Redemption. Twitter is underscore T-O Redemption. On Facebook, you can search for the Facebook page, Thoughts of Redemption. And of course, the website, uh, thoughtsofredemption.com. And so you have a blessed life and, and I'll see you later. <laughs>